This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. Hey, welcome back to uh, Asking for a Friend, a series where we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, you can turn to chapter 2, or you can find it on the screen, you can use your phone, you can grab the Bible of the guy next to you if he's not looking. Uh, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We started this last week, and a quick refresher from last week, we said Ecclesiastes is one of three books written by Solomon, a philosopher king who lived uh, over 3,000 years ago. And in this book, Ecclesiastes, it's like his memoirs. Uh, towards the end of his life, he sits down and, and writes what he learned and the good of life and the bad of life. And uh, he, he starts it out by, by sharing a lot of depressing thoughts. Last week we called it kind of like a big group therapy project where Solomon sets us down and, and says, I have some bad news. And he just gives us one thing after another, after another. Here they are as a recap from last week. The outline of chapter one, we talked about the fact that Solomon says life is meaningless. Nothing ever changes. We're never satisfied. Uh, we're not making any progress and wisdom is a wound the more we know the more it hurts Uh, you ever learn things you wish you didn't know wish I didn't know now or I didn't know then Solomon says too late you know it and it's true and it hurts and we we read that and we hear that and some of you may think why why study a book like that why write a book like that why would Solomon do that well the answer the easiest answer is the simplest answer is because it's true it's real it, it's honest. Ecclesiastes is the kind of book full of things that we all think, even though at times we think we shouldn't think those things. We feel bad about thinking the kind of things that are deep inside our heart, but they're there. And we, and we fear if anyone knew that we're thinking these kind of things, what would they think about us for thinking the kinds of things that we think? And the big joke is they're thinking the same things that you're thinking and I'm thinking. We all have the same common set of fears and insecurities and Solomon says, let's just talk about them. Let's be honest. Let's just blow the door off the top of it and talk about them. We all face these existential issues. Here's another way to look at last week's uh, outline to make it even more relevant. Right? Purpose. Who of us have not asked, what's my purpose in life? Monotony. Things are so boring. It's so repetitive. This feels so useless and monotonous. Am I ever going to be content? Am I ever going to be satisfied? Am I ever going to feel like there's enough? Am I ever going to improve? Is there any real self-improvement? Am I going to get better at life, at anything? Do I even know myself? Am I self-aware? Is it possible to know who I am? Maybe it is, but when I find out who I really am, I end up, I don't even like who I am. Those issues are at the core of the human heart. Those are things we all wrestle with. And, And I'll tell you what, those issues, as relevant as they are, they don't come from the headline of, Time or, or Newsweek or, or CNN or a psychiatry textbook, that list of issues that Solomon covers over and over throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, it comes from a book, an ancient, ancient book that was written over 3,000 years ago. And in spite of the fact that it was written over 3,000 years ago, this book knows you and this book knows me very, very well. Written by Solomon, this philosopher king that that we said lived uh, almost a thousand years before, over a thousand years before Jesus. And uh, the book, the uh, Greeks called it Ecclesiastes, the Hebrews called it Koaleth. Uh, it's part of actually a, an ancient collection of writings that have been passed down for thousands of years. 
almost 2,000 years ago, around the end of the first century, it was codified in its final form, and uh, Ecclesiastes became one of 66 books that were codified at that time, 66 letters. Uh, and then from that point on, generation to generation would take it and they would pass it to those who would come behind them and they would say, there's some good stuff in here. Read this. And an unbroken chain of 2,000 years of history has been passing along this collection of writings. Some of you came in here today carrying it under your arm and bound in leather. Some of you have it in your phone. It would be hundreds of years before uh, we would start referring to it as one combined collection, thinking of it even as one book. For the, the first large portion of history... It was, a, it was a collection of well-synchronized, inspired, relevant, intriguing, piercing writings. Over time, because they traveled together, we eventually started to refer to it as one book. Eventually, hundreds of years later, started calling it the Bible. And regardless of what you think about the Bible, some people wonder if it's, if it's reliable, they question its authenticity. All right. Maybe, maybe you wonder what its true intent and true purpose is. Okay, regardless of what you think about on those issues, there's no denying the fact that this book knows you. Ecclesiastes speaks directly to the human condition. It hits things that we all think or have thought or will think again while we're down here on earth. Solomon goes through all of them, and at first, when he talks about all these issues, it's not encouraging. Last week's message was not extremely encouraging. And upon initial examination of all that, his prognosis about where we're going and his idea about what to do next was also not very encouraging. What, what Solomon does when he comes to grips with this reality of who we really are as a people is the same thing that many of us do when we get truth, hard truth about reality. He tries to ignore it. He tries to run from it. He tries to deny it. He goes on this social experiment that really becomes a train wreck of trying to find and grasp for meaning and fulfillment as a resolution, as an answer to the fact that life is so meaningless and monotonous and unsatisfying. That experiment is chapter 2. And he kept a journal, and we get to follow along and watch this train wreck unfold. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. Solomon says, turn it up. Let's let the good times roll. And you may think that, read that, and think, like I do, what's wrong with that? Yeah, turn it up. Let's, let's let the good times roll. I, I think that's a good idea. And let me go on record as saying, I do too. I'm very much pro-pleasure. I like the idea. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to debate it. I know I like nice things. I like comfortable shoes. I like good food. I like loud music. I like my wife. I like nice things. What's wrong with that? Hopefully nothing. But that's the point of this sermon today. Last week, we asked, is there life before death? Solomon's chasing this. Is there any life down here before I die? This week, the question Solomon's chasing is, should I feel bad for feeling good? And his initial conclusion is not comforting. He said, let's look for the good things in life, but I found that this, too, was meaningless. You'll find it, it seems like Solomon is playing this ping pong game with us. Going back and forth on this emotional roller coaster. Let's, let's have a good time, let's do a lot of really fun things, let's party. I tried that and it was miserable. Up and down, back and forth. Charles Dickens, in what may be his most famous novel, uh, A Tale of Two Cities, 
He opens that with two lines. Even if you haven't read the book, you probably know the lines or you've heard them before. What are the, how does he open A Tale of Two Cities? Yeah, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Well, since then, and continually still, Dickens gets criticized with cartoons like this. Come on, Mr. Dickens. It was either the best or the worst. It can't be both. Make up your mind. We kind of want to say that to Solomon. So make up your mind, Solomon. Either things are miserable or they're great. How can they be both? Well, that tension is what I think we need to follow. We need to chase that tension if we're going to figure out this riddle called life, this enigma that Solomon has set up. Things are really bad, so be happy. Be encouraged. It's worse than you think. Right? That tension, we can't ignore it. Our conscience is leading us there, and I think it's leading us there because that's the answer to figuring out, should I feel bad for feeling good? If so, then, then why do I feel this? Why do I feel good? Why should I feel bad for it? Follow that tension because we're getting ready to watch this train wreck of Solomon's life unfold. He keeps a journal for us. And as we watch this train wreck and read the journal, he's going to try things that we all like. Laughter and, and sex and food and money. And we're going to think, what's wrong with all that? Why did it make him miserable? Why did he have an issue with all these things? Don't stop asking that question. Hopefully, when we land this plane here at the end of the message, that tension will arrive us, will will take us to a destination that will help us understand how to sort all of this mess, how to sort it all out. All right, let's jump in. So I said, verse 2, so I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? See the tension immediately, the tension? Laughter is silly. I don't know. I like laughter. What's wrong with laughter? I'm pro-laughter. I like comedy movies. I like stand-up comedians. I think comedians, stand-up comedians, are master communicators. And I communicate for a living. I love to watch them do what they do because it takes skill to write a joke and deliver it really, really well. You want to hear a joke? I've been working on it all week long. What do you call a lazy doctor? Dr. Doolittle. It's funny. So I'm not a master comedian, and, and maybe that's not the best joke. Uh, but I like laughter. Solomon likes laughter. You like laughter. I like laughter. The point of this is that laughter as an end in itself will only take us so far. In another one of his books, Solomon says, laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, the grief remains. How many Robin Williams do we need to see to prove this point? That many of those who live their lives on stage entertaining us especially those who rise to the top of their field, are some of the loneliest carrying the heaviest burdens. Because laughter can only take you so far. It only has so much caloric content before you crash if you live your life feasting on entertainment like that. So Solomon continues his search. After much thought, I decided just to cheer myself with wine. Now at this point, Many of us may be tempted to have a discussion on the morality of alcohol in general. Is it ever good to have a drink? Well, let me just say, regardless of your background, of your abilities, your temptations, what you can do, what you can't, what you think, what you let me just say, it's always dangerous to say more than the Bible says about any given topic. That's a slippery slope. To say more than the Bible said. It's the same thing that the Pharisees did. It's the same slippery slope where you make rules about the rules. You come so in love with the rules that you make rules about the rules to make sure we don't ever even get close to breaking the rules. The problem with that, the Pharisees found out, 
is that, that over time you forget the original rule. And even worse, you forget the reason the rule existed. The part of your heart that the rule was there to bring out. You forget all that when you have rules about the rules. That takes that, that, that works. We need to set that over on top of any time we're tempted to say more, even with good intentions. We're so worried about the effects and the damages. Anytime we're tempted to say more than what the Bible says, we need to be aware it's just a slippery slope. Me, personally, I like to enjoy a good beer every once in a while. Not 15 beers, but a good beer or two every once in a while. Not an IPA or a wine cooler. Those are sinful. But a good lager with a German name. I like that every once in a while. If you can't do one beer without having 16 beers, then you have no business having one beer. Because what Solomon is discussing and condemning here is using alcohol, relying on alcohol, really as medicine, to lift our mood, to alter who we are. And that, as a culture, we celebrate. We sing songs about it. We say, we sing songs about having 86-proof anesthetic crutches brought you to the top, where the smiles are all synthetic and the ulcers never stop. Maybe a little bit more uh, recognizable to some of you, Mr. James Buffett sings a song where he says, I was wasted away in Mar... Listen to these lyrics. Wasted away in Margaritaville, searching for my lost shaker of salt. Some people claim there's a woman to blame. Now I think it could be my fault. I blew out my flip-flop, stepped on a pop-top, cut my heel, had to cruise on back home. But there's booze in the blender, and soon it will render that frozen concoction that helps me hang on. These things are beneath us, friends. This is beneath you. And I don't say that to be condescending or condemning. I say that as means of encouragement. Look, the problem is not that God is anti-pleasure. He's not. Pleasure was his idea. God made this stuff up. He's not anti-pleasure. The problem is that some of us are too easily pleased. We're too easily medicated. We, we, we stop short of what God has in store for us. Look at the rest of this verse. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And listen to the wisdom in this. While still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. I was wise, but I wasn't going to let go of the foolishness. I didn't want to let go of it. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. It's depressing. This is as close to happiness as some people ever get. Is getting lost in Margaritaville. So lost you can't even find the salt. Convinced there's more, Solomon keeps looking. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many nourishing or flourishing groves. So if Solomon can't laugh and drink his way to satisfaction, he's going to build and work his way there. He said, I, I built huge homes and vineyards. So he, he dabbles in real estate. Solomon was a prolific builder. Nothing wrong with real estate. Nothing wrong with building stuff. Solomon was a phenomenal builder. Built some awesome stuff. The Bible records it. He was very impressive. One of the most prolific builders of the day. He turns the gardens and parks. Solomon had some phenomenal hobbies. Oh, do you have any hobbies? Nothing wrong with hobbies. Solomon was into gardening and uh, making parks. 
I don't have a hobby. I'm trying to get a hobby. My wife says I have to have a hobby, so I'm trying because she tells me I have to. Hobbies are good. Nothing wrong with hobbies. Solomon had them. Gardening is not my thing. I like to look at gardens and be in gardens. I don't like to make gardens. Solomon had some good hobbies. He went on. He says, I bought slaves. Men and women. They were born, and, and others who were born into my household. So he had a, a huge host of people working for him so he could have all the time to devote to leisure that he wanted, which some of us think is great, right? I, I, I need more leisure time in my life. How would you like to have a whole army of people working for you to do the stuff that you don't want to do? What would you have them do? What would you do? If you, just, you didn't have to do anything you don't want to do because you've got a whole bunch of people waiting to be told what to do for you. Would you have them do the dishes? Change the diapers? Fold the laundry? I hate folding laundry. I don't know why it brings out the worst in me. I hate folding laundry. What would you have them do? I don't know what I would... What I haven't figured out is what I would do with the free time that I would get if I had someone do the things I don't want to do. Just more free time, Solomon would say, for monotony and not being satisfied. But he had plenty of slaves to do what he wanted, didn't want to do. He said he had herds and flocks. Solomon had one killer zoo. His own personal zoo. I like the zoo a lot. I like elephants. I like penguins. I like rhinos. I don't know why, but those are my favorite animals. I would love to have a zoo full of elephants, penguins, and rhinos. If you owned a zoo, you had enough money to buy a zoo, and you had plenty of employees to shovel all the zoo poop so you could enjoy the zoo without all the bad things in the zoo, would you be happy? Solomon wasn't. He goes on, he says, I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. Solomon was so rich, the Bible said, that if you drank from a silver cup during the days of Solomon, you were considered poor. Because silver was beneath him. He, he, was, he was too good to, to mingle with the commoners who actually had silver cups where he had gold and more expensive things. Solomon had more money than a horse had hair. More than he knew what to do with. Here's a couple pictures I have of Solomon with his money. Here's one. Solomon hanging out with his money. Here's another one. Solomon swimming with his money. Most of us see this and we think, yes, that's what it is. That's what it would take. What I need, I don't, zoos are okay, whatever, but I want money. If I was rich, if just, if I was only, if I could just be rich, as that one philosophic country song goes, I wish I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. We're just waiting for some rich uncle to die. I don't have any rich uncles. But uh, if we could just be rich, we think then we would be happy. But the problem with that, you ever ask someone? I have. Okay, how much would it take? How much money do you need to be happy? It doesn't matter who you ask. It doesn't matter where they are on the socioeconomic ladder. Whoever you ask, how much money do you need to be happy? The answer is always the same. A little bit more. Just a little bit more. We all think if we had just a little bit more. You know what that means? That means somebody thinks you are rich. Somebody thinks you have arrived at where they need to be to be happy. And there are times when you think, whether you admit it or not, you think, if I just had a little bit more, life would be good. We all think that. See, rich is a moving target. We can't grasp it. It's like chasing the wind. Solomon's finding out joy and contentment, everything under the sun. It's like a moving target. I can't grab it and put it in my pocket. He goes on, though. He didn't. He didn't it's not for lack of trying. He said, I hired wonderful singers, both men and women. Wouldn't you like to have enough money 
that you could hire your favorite band to just follow you around and play for you wherever you went. I would. I would. I would. I would hire a Third Day, maybe Bob Seger, Mellencamp. I would buy you two, all of you two, the whole band. I just buy them, and they follow me around anywhere I went. And if I got bored, I would just say, "Set up and play Sunday Bloody Sunday," or "Beautiful Day," or something. Just because I could, because I own them. I would love to have enough money to own a band to follow me around wherever I went. Who would you buy if you had enough money? Now, remember the text says, I hired wonderful singers. So you can't buy a boy band. You can't can't buy Taylor Swift. Sorry. It's got to be someone with skill. A wonderful singer. Some of you are like, I'm turning this guy off. Now I'm done. Bashing on Taylor Swift. All right, he goes on. And I had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. We know what, what these are for. Some of you are sitting there thinking, I like, I like money, I like wine, sure, I like rhinoceroses, nothing again, I like all that stuff, but what I really want, what I would really like to have is just a bunch of good-looking women, men, sitting around naked, just waiting on me. Just waiting on me to come in and tell them what to do. Just a bunch of good-looking naked people. If I had that, I would be happy, and to be honest, I'd probably never leave the house. Solomon says, well, I, I had it. I could sit on my rhino, drink my wine, eat my food off a gold plate, and stare at as many naked people as I wanted to stare at, and uh, nothing. I got nothing. Okay. He goes on to say, I become greater, I became greater than all who lived in Jerusalem, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. Solomon says, so in summary, I'm kind of a big deal. If you're keeping score, I had everything, all of it. I had no delayed gratification. I had a great job. I was richer than you, smarter than you. I was hornier than you. I had all the stuff you wish you could have. I was a very, very big deal. But as I looked at everything, I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. I was a miserably depressed, bored, rich, very, very big deal. Solomon would say, I worked so hard to climb all of the ladders everyone wished they could climb, only to find out that those ladders, I'm telling you, they're leaning against the wrong building. I thought what you thought. I thought they would take me where I wanted to go, and so I climbed all of them. And I got to the top, and I looked around, and it was not where I thought I was going. Solomon says, of all the things I thought, I don't know if anything I thought really mattered. He talks about thinking and wisdom. He goes on, For the wise can see where they are going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as a fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is all so meaningless. Don't take me for anti-education, because I'm not. I'm not. If you hear that, then I've been misunderstood. However, there are limits to what education and knowledge can do for us and where it can take us. We used to think 
that we could solve all the problems, everything from addiction to war, if we could just get people more educated, if we could just teach people the issues behind all these problems. You just get people more educated. Well, all we do is use our education to cook up more sophisticated drugs or more elegant ways of killing. It doesn't change the fundamental nature of who we are as humans. Listen, by Genesis 4, Cain used a rock to kill his brother. He didn't need education. He came out of the womb knowing how to do that. By Genesis 9, Noah gets drunk and passes out naked. We all know how to do this stuff. And, and education, all it does is help us throw bigger rocks and kill more people with them or design better drugs to get the job done faster. So his conclusion, Solomon's conclusion is, sometimes the only thing wisdom can do for you is help you see the train right before it runs you over. And so if you trace Solomon's argument from the very beginning, as we've been doing, you'll see that Solomon is about to come unglued. Verse 20, he says, I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, and then they must leave the fruit of their effort to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. You can hear the emotion and the anguish, the, the resignation in Solomon's voice. I can imagine him, if he's writing this, his hand almost shaking as he writes it. He's reaching the end of his life. He's writing his memoirs. He's becoming contemplative, as we often do as we get older. And he asks, what's all this been for? What's the point? I worked so hard for all of this, and now somebody else is going to take it, and I don't know what they're going to do with it. It doesn't matter anyway, because I'm going to be gone, and you're going to forget about me. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how good you are at your job. Solomon says, death is the great equalizer. The death rate is one per person. Everybody gets it. Here's his, his crescendo, his grand finale. Why? What do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of life are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless. Who, who cannot relate to this? Every one of us. Let's just trace this. Unpack these two verses, Solomon says. Right, so, so we worry about whether we're going to have enough work to provide. And then when we get work, we worry that we're working too much at the cost of quality time with our loved ones. It hurts us physically. Life and work start to wear on the body. I'm almost two inches shorter than I was when I enlisted in the Army over a decade ago. Years of carrying around a big ruck on my back has literally compressed me. I'm not as tall as I used to be. As a result, my back hurts all the time. I have about half of my hearing left. Thankfully, I can still see, so I can watch how ugly my body is decomposing. Right? It, just, it happens to all of us. Not only does it hurt physically, it hurts emotionally, Solomon says. It, 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 it pains us. It, we grieve over the fact that, that we may have made the right decision and we may not have. Sometimes we just flat out cry when we know we made the wrong decision. I goofed around and I partied too much. I drank too much. Or I did too many drugs. I went through too much money. I slept with too many people. I spent too much time at work. That is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. It's a little too close to home, isn't it? And the result, Solomon says, is we can't even sleep at night. I lie awake at night in anguish 
rehearsing conversations, rehearsing scenarios in my head, it completely robs me of my peace. Does this sound familiar? It's the condition of every human being under the sun. We have all come to grips with this. If we haven't, we will, or we will again. So what do we do? What's Solomon's prognosis? So I decided there was nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? It's interesting Solomon doesn't go back to the list that we mentioned at the very beginning of this message and he unfolded the whole thing. He doesn't go back to the list and start to condemn all the things on the list, which is what we might expect him to do. That's the religious approach. It's been called happiness by subtraction. Stop doing stuff. All the stuff. Stop doing it. Instead, be moral. Be very, very moral. Or legalistic, or fundamental, or whatever. Just don't do stuff. Be a moral person instead. Don't smile, because if you smile, you might laugh. Don't drink, because if you drink, you might get drunk. Don't listen to music, because if you listen to music, somebody might show up and start playing the drums, and we all know drums are from the devil. So whatever you do, look really, really sad. Whenever you start to feel good, feel bad about it. That's the moral approach. That's the religious approach. That's happiness by subtraction. Look miserable so everybody else will see you and be miserable, and they'll want to die and go to heaven. That's the religious strategy. (laughs) There's two problems with being religious and being moral, which if you've known me for five minutes, you know I hate it. There's two pro- Here's why I hate it. It's grounded for two reasons. One, every day moral people die and wake up in hell. Every day. The most moral people, the most religious people, are the ones who killed Jesus. The other problem is that all that stuff that religion tells you to avoid, all that stuff on the list that brings you pleasure, that religion says stop doing it, God made that stuff. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? We make rules about the rules religiously and then we say don't do this stuff that God made for us. It's all God's idea. Pleasure, joy, comedy, music, fried chicken, sex, even sex. It was God's idea. I like God's ideas. I don't like happiness by subtraction. The opposite approach, the one taken by most of the world, happiness by addition. This is the one Solomon just walked us through. Just add more, more alcohol, more sex, more money, more hobbies. Now, in doing this, Solomon stumbled across what we call the the law of diminishing returns. If you pursue something strong enough and long enough, it becomes harder to keep getting results. Any addiction proves this, right? There's a reason why the first one's free. Because then you're chasing it and you can't get enough. As one writer has said, an addiction is a banquet in the grave. Amen. So Solomon, like like each of us, depending on the target, we may swap it out, but we're all, at one time or another, chasing all of these things, trying to find meaning and fulfillment. Listen to me. If you hear anything else, listen. You know what you find something? You You know what you call something that gives you meaning and fulfillment? If something gives you meaning, it fulfills you. You know what you call that? God. We refer to that as Jesus. That's where meaning and fulfillment comes from. Now, if you don't call 
the source of your meaning and fulfillment, Jesus, then it's an idol. And that's why the opposite of Christianity is not atheism. The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. Because we are all worshiping something. There's no such thing as an atheist. We're all worshiping something. The stuff that we end up worshiping instead of God, it's not bad stuff. But stuff is for enjoyment. God is for satisfaction. God is for contentment. Stuff is to be enjoyed. God is to be satisfying. How do we keep the two straight? What do we do? Let's read the verse again. We're almost done. Let's read it it a little bit differently. I think this is how Solomon might have intended it. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God? For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? All this stuff came from God? He gave us this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So enjoy it. That's why He thought of it. That's why He gave it to you. Enjoy it. And by the way, if we're going to combine this with chapter 1, stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop it. Because at some point, you're going to die, we're going to put you in a box, and we're going to forget about you. And everything you, you work so hard to build, somebody else is going to get it. They may do something good with it, they may not, but regardless, we're not going to remember you, so top, stop taking yourself so seriously. Wake up in the morning, do the best you can with what you have, come home, eat a steak, drink a beer, make love to your wife, go to bed, wake up, do the same thing all over again the very next day. Do that until you see Jesus face to face. That's Solomon's prognosis. That's the way to resolve the tension. Don't feel bad about doing good, but handle it correctly. One one preacher has put it this way, or one commentator has put it this way. He said, all that stuff that we like, it's like like having a big can of peaches. If you don't like peaches, substitute some other fruit, whatever, pineapple, whatever. It's like having a big can of fruit. And we know there's something good inside that can. So when we stumble across it and we find it, we know there's something good inside of it, we go to work trying to break it open. Pound it open, cut it open, gnaw on it with our teeth, anything to rip that can open and get at the good stuff that's inside. God comes along and finds us bloody and bruised and beaten and cut up from prying the can open. And God says, would you like to have a can opener? No, this would make opening the can a whole lot easier. God says, let me help you open the can. And and not only that, listen, you don't have to eat the whole can right now. You don't have to save the whole can for later. Let me open the can for you. Enjoy what's in the can. You don't have to save it. You don't have to consume it all. Anytime you need more, come back to me, and I will always give you what you need. More cans of peaches? More can openers? I only made these things for you. Find joy, find pleasure in them. But don't forget that you didn't make them up, I did. And I made them up because I love you. Should I feel bad for feeling good? I think it depends on how I open the can of peaches. I'll give Solomon's dad the last word. You, O Lord, you, Lord, will show me the way of life granting me the joy of your presence 
and the pleasures of living with you forever.